My name is Rose B. Simpson. I'm from Santa Clara Pueblo. Um, I <laughs> I am uh, a thing, a creature. <laughs> I don't know how else to explain it, really. <laughs> I relate to a lot of cartoon characters. <laughs> I think maybe my clan is of the cartoon character clan. Otherwise, uh, yeah. I mean, there's the real clans and stuff like that, but I relate mostly to, like, Stitch from Lilo and Stitch and maybe uh, Night Fury from How to Train Your Dragon, you know. (laughs) 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 I've been been making my peace with that. (laughs) Yeah. What kind of art are you doing currently? Oh... Um, I just finished making some work for a show at Site Santa Fe, um, and I, I sort of fabricated these nine, they're over nine foot tall, um, ceramic and found object and metal and leather, um, pieces, and it's two large pieces that are facing each other, um, um, sort of abstract and simple, um, figurative work that is sort of about um, our interrelationships. So um, the piece is called Alter, A-L-T-E-R. So it's sort of, um, it's kind of a long story, but I was uh, collaborating with a friend of mine and he wasn't able to finish the collaboration. But part of our dialogue was based on how do you create sort of a sacred space and um and how how do we express the 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 feeling or the intuitive space that everything we do and every action and interaction that we have in life is a sacred space um and so how I was sort of talking to him about how we deconstruct this idea of creating creating a sacred space to just that moment of interconnection or awakening of that interpersonal um, moment of sharing an aesthetic experience. So how we alter each other is also like an alter, A-L-T-A-R. So it's, um, it's the, the idea or the challenge for myself was to make a piece that was um, as powerful by way of scale so that it sort of hit you deeply but at the same time was very simple in its um, statement so um yeah how can I simplify that statement um and and uh portray it in, in sort of a monumental way um and that was kind of my challenge for that but that's why I'm sort of tired because I just finished that piece <laughs> and installed it <laughs> 
so yeah. so you say it was kind of abstract and just from knowing you and your work you you really work with the figure a lot um is this kind of along the lines of being figurative or is this blown out even further than the figure um it's definitely figurative um I mean, it's, it doesn't have, like, arms and legs and feet and hands, etc., but it's it has that sort of um, figurative proportions by way of... Um, it has, they have heads and faces and um, sort of the, the volume or, or um, expression of body, but it's sort of... I, I kind of like the idea of deconstructing that, that stereotype or, or judgment or assumption of what is and sort of we can understand ourselves as, in a sense, like um, spiritual beings or spirits that sort of are inhabiting this um, physical plane, you know. Mm. So then the abstraction allows for that, the, the dynamism of, of that sort of spiritual reality to exist within, within a, a manifested physical environment of body. <laughs> Simply put. <laughs> <laughs> Can you remember like a moment in your life when you were like, the figure is what draws me as an hmm. artist? Well, maybe I should talk a little bit about where I come from <laughs> instead of <laughs> cartoon characters. <laughs> but I, um, uh, I had a really interesting uh, childhood and partly because I was um, mm, raised by... Some interesting people. <laughs> um, and my mother is Roxanne Swensel, who is from Santa Clara Pueblo, and she is a contemporary um, sculptor of the human body. Um, and she makes these small sort of figurative works out of clay. And... Um, my father is Patrick Simpson, who is from originally, he's of European ancestry, and he makes, he grew up in Annapolis, Maryland, sailing, and he really is obsessed with boats, and so he was, he's an artist in wooden metal, and he makes boats and fabricates metal boats and stuff, um, but I also had... <laughs> Um, several stepdads, <laughs> and um, they were also very influential. Um, um, my mom, Roxanne, and my stepdad, Joel Glansberg, started a Flowering Tree Permaculture Institute when I was a little kid, and permaculture is the study of sustainable living systems. And so um, me and my brother, Porter Swensel, were homeschooled and we um, grew all of our own food and figured out how to exist um, off of this quarter acre of land that we grew our food and sustained ourselves off of. And the whole idea was a practice in sustainability. And, um, so 
I grew up with this really strong um, understanding of how our actions affect our environment. And I think that I was, I honestly, I, I love the idea of permaculture, uh, although as a little kid who didn't have, you know, my mom made our shoes out of old tires from the dump. And like, <laughs> you know, we were growing our own food and eating our pets. And my cousin was watching TV and going to McDonald's and drinking Coke. And it was, it seemed just so not natural to push, put ourselves in a situation that was, inhumane and it was it seems sort of inhumane honestly in, in a few ways um and so I think what I took from that concept of permaculture was how do we um understand the patterning or the pattern system of self in relation to environment and so that's not just um our environmental factors like our carbon footprints etc but also our spiritual relationship to the environment and to the world and to each other and and our actions and our levels of consciousness and how aware are we of our actions and I think the more aware we are of our actions as um, you know as conscious human beings just coexisting with other people and communities and cultures etc then, then the more conscious and aware we will be of our environments and the impact we have on, you know, our Mother Earth and on our communities and on our, on our felt brothers and sisters in the plant world and our brothers and sisters in the animal world, and etc. <laughs> um, and so I think I took that idea of permaculture and applied it to self. And so... Self-awareness and self-consciousness, I believe, is the highest form of sustainability. So if we can understand ourselves and truly um, be conscious of our actions, then we are more informed in how we proceed in the world and how careful we approach everything and how you know the more informed we are the better decisions we make and to start with know thyself and so the figure the reason why I make figurative works is because I am working to learn myself Um, and everything that I do is in a sense recreating myself so that I can look at it and learn something new about myself and grow from that in order to apply that to future experiences. Um, and so the figure is such a is such a relatable thing for you know for humankind, right? So um, I mean, like in graduate school, uh, one of my teachers would talk about you know. The figure, or the—I mean—working with ceramics, it—it—it—it it, is very much um, influenced by gravity. It holds that same energy as a physical being, and it—and it, and it um, sort of builds relationship to space and and groundedness in a similar manner that the human body does. So, um, the ceramic figure is a pretty amazing thing. Um, 
to trigger empathy, right? Mm. So we can really, by creating a ceramic figure, it is really a tool to build an understanding between oneself and a stranger um, and build empathy and, and um, uh, mutual understanding, I think. You know, communication is really what it is, communication. Mm. Um, so that's my long story of why I make figures. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know that, actually. Um, I thought it was kind of just like um, following in your mom's footsteps, you know, uh, as, like having that comfort of like knowing, knowing how to work the clay in that way. I didn't know it was um, more of, of uh, self-reflective. So that's pretty cool. I I wouldn't yeah that's I mean I guess I wouldn't say that that wasn't influential you know mm-hmm. like I say you know I can only do what I do in the art world and push the boundaries that I can push because there were those who came before me that that pushed to as far as they did in their time in their context you know mm-hmm. um, and so you know there was in my family. My family has been working in clay for, you know, over a thousand years, you know, and there's been um, sort of a passed down manner to which we work with clay. And, you know, it hit a certain generation or a certain time and people started experimenting with what clay can do, right? Um, And because of my uncle Michael Naranjo, and uh, my mom started making figurative work out of clay. And um, also my Aunt Nora Naranjo Morse uh, was very experimental with what, what's possible with clay. And because of these amazing people in my family, you know, I, I saw what was possible and I could start from where they left off in a sense and, and honor that journey forward and sort of... Um, that evolution that I am responsible for, I think, as well. Do you feel pressured? to be from a family that's so profound? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. I think there's pros and cons. <laughs> um, I love having context. And I think, you know, when I went to graduate school, I left New Mexico and went to uh, Providence, Rhode Island, to the Rhode Island School of Design. And I wanted to be anonymous because I come from a very strong community, a very big family of um, really profound people in different ways. And I, I wanted to figure out who Rose was apart from that context. And, you know, there's a beauty in that anonymity and that independence and that sort of freedom to find who you are without that. But I also very much feel like I am held and I'm never alone in this sense of community that I come from. And maybe it's just because I'm a Pueblo person and we like to huddle together. 
even though we might fight at times. <laughs> we, we like to stick together. Um, so I like being home. And, you know, where I, I live now, I live next to my cousin and my auntie and my other auntie. And we, you know, we have a little family compound and we watch out for each other and be nosy at the same time. And it's awesome to have that sense of, of place, of belonging, of knowing that this is the center of my world and I will always come home, you know. Mm. And that's a, that's a good feeling. So I guess I also am, am truly um, grateful for the work, the aesthetic um, exploration that my family has done and that continue to do, you know. Like, you know, my mom continues to make these amazing pieces. And every time I see a new one, I'm just blown away at her skill and her intuitive uh, approach to art making. And my Aunt Nora, just like, every new piece she comes out, it just blows my mind conceptually. She's a true uh, explorer and thinker, and she's audacious in the way that I love to see people be audacious, you know? She's daring and brave. Um, and I, I really like to be influenced by that and to see people that I love, you know, really pushing the boundaries and asking those questions that may be hard to ask sometimes. Heard your voice on the phone last night It echoed through the dark Drew the letters of the words you spoke Fingered across the floor and you use a lot of different materials other than clay. Can you talk about some of the other materials that you are in love with right now? I like things with wheels. <laughs> Especially if they go fast. <laughs> Make a lot of noise going fast. <laughs> Specifically motorcycles and late 60s muscle cars. <laughs> And when, where did that come from? When did that start? What's going on? Break it down. Uh, break it down. Um, well, it's, it's all kind of funny and hypocritical. And I spent a lot of time thinking about it. Um, and it has, it has truly been, um, wow, there's, there's so many reasons, honestly. Um, one of the main reasons is that I grew up in, in Santa Clara Pueblo, which is adjacent to Española, New Mexico. And Española, New Mexico, is the lowrider capital of the world. And I believe this comes from a statistic that there are more lowriders per capita than in East L.A. or any other place that you would think have more lowriders than Española. Española tops them all. Dang. Um, so when I was a little kid, we would go into town and we would drive through Española on Riverside Drive and there would be some of the most beautiful cars you have ever seen. Um, it's 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 also Espanol is also famous for some other things which aren't very things to be proud of. That's for sure. <laughs> but even though people might live a sort of rough life, you might say um, there is a certain dedication, and it's a cultural dedication to this aesthetic experience and this this amazing dedication to these cars just blows my mind. The amount of time, energy, effort, 
um, money that people put into these cars just for that moment of driving through town on a Sunday afternoon, really, you know, and that pride and that sense of accomplishment and that um, it, it's all so tied to the aesthetic experience, which is, which is so innately human. We want so badly to experience these aesthetic moments in our lives, right? And so we try to recreate these over and over in different ways. And this Española found a culture that was based on the vehicle. And it was the aesthetics of the vehicle. And I remember being a little kid and telling myself, when I grow up, I'm going to have a lowrider. And then and only then will I be a grown-up. <laughs> <laughs> and I will be grown-up and I will drive my lowrider and I will be so happy and life will be complete. So, so you, you know, there? life happens. <laughs> so, so I did. So, <laughs> so I grew up. I just kidding. <laughs> Ding. <laughs> got it. I got it. <laughs> no, I, uh, um, you know, I went, I went, tra I traveled, I went to school, I did all this stuff and I came home back to New Mexico, back to Santa Clara, back to Española. And I met somebody in Santa Fe who actually got me, uh, who got me back interested in cars. Um, meanwhile, I, I sort of, this is a, something that many people might know about me, but I like to drive fast. <laughs> <laughs> I like to drive. Um, when I was a little kid, I was like, if I'm not an artist, I have to fly a stealth bomber. You know, I have to do something like, I, that's what I wanted to do. I did not want to fly a helicopter, but, you know, F-14, F-15, you know, something like that, you know, fast. But I don't want to kill people, so kind of smash that dream. So what's the other thing I could do? Well, cars are pretty awesome, and there's something um, beautiful about um, about cars. I mean, obviously, I had this whole Espanol growing up experience, and then I realized that, oh, I forgot. I was also bi-local, <laughs> which means my parents were separated, and I had two different houses that I went back and forth to my dad's and back to my mom's. And um, so I got fed up with going back and forth to my mom's on their, on their sort of timeline. So when I was 12, I bought my first car. It was a Jeep Cherokee. And um, it was my freedom, right? All of a sudden, I was free. I was independent. I was capable. I was, um, I was my own thing. You know, my car became everything to me. And, and sort of nothing has changed. I've, I've, I've created these really probably unhealthy relationships with my vehicles ever since then because I project so much of my freedom and my, um, my life and my independence on these cars. And so I think, to me, the cars have become a reflection of, of empowerment and, um, you know, freedom and the freedom to choose and also protection and um, empowerment. Yeah, so... So I got I started digging around these uh, junkyards in Santa Fe, and I found this 1968 Buick Skylark. Um, and probably you know I was looking for a Chevelle really, but I couldn't afford a Chevelle. And but when I found this Buick Skylark, um, I realized that it was the most feminine and sort of 
graceful of the late 60s muscle cars. Um, and and sh- I fell in love. I fell in love with this car. And I dragged it home. And um, I started working on it. And, you know, if I knew then what I knew now, what I know now, I probably would have chosen a different car <laughs> <laughs> for many reasons. But it really, um, it became my rock in this cool way because... Um, I think I'm a pretty, I think I'm a pretty complex emotional creature. Um, and there's reasons for that, but I, life is a very, um, it's not clear cut. It's not easy to understand. My emotions are very strong and, 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 uh, I think I'm a sensitive person and I'm also very, uh, a reactionary to those sensitivities and so life is is pretty heavy and complicated and oftentimes really confusing and frustrating and when I got this car the 68 Buick Skylark uh, one of the most amazing things was walking out to my car when I started falling and starting to work on my car and you turn a bolt left it unscrews you turn a bolt right it screws back in Gear A turns right, gear B turns left, gear C turns right. It is so rational in its empowerment. It's so the engine and the movement of it, everything makes so much sense. And it's so um, it's so comforting in its um, in its sort of mathematical dependency. Even though cars can sometimes be frustrating and so you know something doesn't work. There's always a way to figure it out. There's always an answer. Um, and I think I found that working on cars has been incredibly calming for me. Um, so there's many reasons that I have sort of followed that. So what I did was I, I signed back up for, so I have a master's degree in ceramics um, from Rhode Island School of Design. I have a bachelor's in studio arts from the Institute of American Indian Arts. And I went back to school for automotive science and auto body, specifically for classic car customization and restoration. And uh, I had I found this '85 El Camino, and I ended up um, stripping that car down of paint and um, pulling out all the dents and welding it up and and, and uh, sort of doing a, a minor customization of it. And I ended up painting it. Uh, uh, flat black, which is a hot rod black satin, and then I I taped off a Pueblo pottery design on it, and then hit it with a gloss clear, so it has a black on black pottery design, similar to my, you know, traditional pottery of my Pueblo and the neighboring Pueblos, um, and so I figured I can't be a traditional potter, so might as well turn this car that is a vessel you know it's an El Camino it's not a spoon it's not a fork it's a spork it's you know what I mean it's this cool cool car and I turned it into a pot in a sense I named her Maria after Maria Martinez the Pueblo Potter and uh took her to some car shows and won best of category and stuff like that so it's super fun um to have that that car and to have followed through and honestly, I've never put so much money or time or energy into any one piece of artwork in my life. <laughs> it's no small feat, that's for sure. 
you know, to do it yourself, really. So Yeah, and stepping out of your comfort zone. I mean, do you have any family that does car restoration or was it kind of your thing? Um, no, nobody's done car stuff to the extent that I've done or taken it, you know. Um, and what's kind of cool is that, you know, there's a history in Española Valley, in the Española Valley between the Hispanic culture and the Pueblo culture, right? So, you know, Española sandwiched between two, you know, Pueblo reservations, uh, Okeowinge, which used to be San Juan Pueblo and Santa Clara Pueblo. And, and you know, the history hasn't always been so pretty, really. You know, you 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 learn about the history of, of the of the Spanish conquest into this area and the peaceful reconquest, quote-unquote, and all that jazz. And it's not pretty. You know, it's not pretty at all. And there still lies this sort of underlying misunderstanding between the cultures. And what was one of the most amazing things was during the Cinco de Mayo car show last year in Española, which is a really amazing car show, lowrider car show, where everybody come, brings their cars out. I had Maria there, and all these sort of Española cholos or people that, you know, were part of that really strong Hispanic car culture were like, I've never seen anyone do that to a car before, like do Pueblo designs on, a, on something like a lowrider, right? And then, so they were like caught by the fact that this is an El Camino. It's like the, it is the flagship of, you know, Hispanic car culture is the El Camino, even the name. Um, and then... You know, then there's these Pueblo kids who are like, oh, you named this car after my grandma, Maria Martinez, you know, let's go cruise. And so all of a sudden in this in this little context, in this valley, we have this 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 point where these cultures are sort of coming together in this one one car. And it's sort of cool to sit back and watch it happen. So that's sort of a cultural experiment. So, uh, you know. It's fulfilling, you know, part of my needs in my life as well, you know. Santa Clara and I went to the Santa Clara day school for a while and then I was homeschooled and then I went to the Santa Fe Indian school for high school and I think you know I was real I was well aware of my sort of you know genetic differences of the people I was around from being a kid you know um and then going to the a unirracial school where you look different than everybody else and um, and trying to sort of understand who you are and how you fit into this sort of dynamic experience that is your life. Um, and I think that's an, that's an ongoing conversation. And I think one of the beautiful things about that has been the questions, the always why, why. Because I've never sort of fit in one or the other I've always had to ask that question, why? And there was always another why. And there was always another why. 
And then there was another one. <laughs> and so as long as there was still a question, there was always still movement. It never stagnated into an answer. And sort of to push myself completely out of my comfort zone, and I was in graduate school, I went and did a foreign study in Japan. And I found myself on the other side of the world completely different, you know, um, completely sort of alone in my thoughts and my experience and realizing that I could still communicate as a human being, that the people around me are all human and we all have these really integral human experiences of being a spirit in a body with a soul and emotions and, and, and a life force and a will and a spirit, etc. So the way that I can communicate is by deconstructing that idea of what culture is supposed to be and start trying to understand what is human culture, what is that pan-global indigeneity that we can all relate to. So going back to relational aesthetics, how do we build a conversation and truly communicate by being inclusive rather than exclusive, right? There was a, a group of artists that came together through the Museum of Contemporary Native Arts a while back with Joseph Sanchez and Bob Jesus. And, and the question is, what is indigenous and what makes us indigenous? And that, and that question keeps popping up in my head. And, and I think... I want to ask, keep asking people, like, what makes us indigenous to this planet? Because we all come from this planet, but what makes us, what is the thing that makes us non-indigenous is maybe the question. And I, and I keep thinking it's unconsciousness. Mm. And if we, can, if we can be aware of our actions and how, they, how we exist in our context and how we understand the pattern that we have become a part of, and how we learn how to coexist with this pattern in a graceful and sustainable manner, that's what makes us indigenous to this planet, right? Mm -hmm. The more you fight the wave, the more energy it takes to exist. So how do you, in a sense, go with the flow, but at the same time have the vision and the audacity to, to see a beautiful future and transform in a forward motion without having to fight or be reactionary. So it's a creative energy. So I guess that's what I think about. <laughs> do, you, do you think, do you feel like you get in your own way personally? Because when you speak of these things, they feel so true you know and so valuable and like yes let's fucking do that you know but then it's like the personal struggle and the personal like emotion and all of that and how do you deal with that balance of knowing and not knowing I think that as long as I deconstruct my judgment of what's good and bad hmm. right what is growth and what is health and what isn't health and what isn't growth right so if I have an idea of a, B, and C are growing in the positive way, and B, you know, and C, D, and E are, or whatever, D, and F are bad, are not good, or unhealthy, you know, um, then I'm sort of stuck in a shame circle. And I think, 
as long as I walk through the world and look at people and look at myself and have forgiveness and understanding and compassion for every person's different state of growth, where everyone is at is going to be different. I can't judge if someone is a, is going through some sort of substance abuse issues or something like that, you know? I can try and help and and try and understand my flow and the creative energy to transform that into a positive way, but that might also be the direction someone needs to go to learn, in mm-hmm. a sense, you know? And so the hardest part is to do that to yourself and to say, hey, honey, self, me. <laughs> You know, that sucked really bad. That actually really, really sucked. I don't ever want to do that again. (laughs) But it was part of my growth, you know, and it had to have happened. It doesn't make me a bad person. It doesn't make me um, less than or going backwards or anything. It was part of my growth. So how how can I learn to forgive myself? The more that I can learn to forgive myself, the less I pass judgment on other people's journeys, right? Mm. Wherever they're at. And so, you know, um, it's good for me, I think, to remember to, you know, compassion and forgiveness for self. And then everything else is easy after that because, you know, struggling with the self is, is your biggest enemy or your biggest struggle is yourself, you know? And so I think that's why I do what I do. That's why I proceed in life in the ways that I go and follow my passion and, and, you know, and and try and balance my passion with uh, my uh, ambition and my audacity, you know, and try and um, sort of balance that with consciousness and carefulness. And it's always a very delicate one. stay inspired I mean you've been making art and working working alongside your family and solo and collaborating for a long time you know and you're still so (laughs) and you're still so young you know so like what what keeps you inspired hmm I guess those questions you know yeah there's always a question and sometimes it's a simple one and sometimes it's a more complex one um one of the things that sort of keeps me rolling is that you know before I went to graduate school I was really scared of getting stuck in a box you know I've seen I saw I saw so many artists get sort of stuck in boxes and and sort of turning into a a factory that they churn out a certain thing and I was mortified of becoming that. I was like, that's not who I am. You know, I need to be transforming and experimenting and doing new things and and challenging myself and challenging my environments, etc. as long as I can. So that's why I went to graduate school was to sort of push myself out of my comfort zone. And it worked, you know. 
and I think one of the backfires of what happened was that now I'm expected to come up with something new all the time. <laughs> so now I'm like, oh man, I'm stuck having to be like audacious and like and daring in different ways all the time now. Like if I if I do the same thing I did six months ago, it's like old news, you know. <laughs> so that's that could be worse, you know, but it's it's kind of good because then I'm like, dang, I'm going to really keep having to, like, challenge myself, you know? That's kind of cool. Yeah. Well, I think that that's mainly you judging yourself right there, no? Oh, no. <laughs> like, who, who are all these people? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, man. Who are these people? There's thousands of voices in my head. Oh! <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so um i want to talk about um concept versus technique and what do you think is more important for an a contemporary artist working today concept versus technique huh i think um you know when i was in graduate school a huge conversation was art versus craft you know mm. and that Art is something that is non-utilitarian, that is concept-driven, right? And craft is something that is utilitarian and process-driven, right? Um, and ceramics being very much oftentimes labeled as uh, utilitarian or craft, right, um, then has, has a lot of trouble fitting into the art market, into the art world. Um, and... You know, it's kind of an old sort of worn-out conversation, um, especially in the educational context. <laughs> um, but I think about, like, you know, what I, what I, I sort of work from concepts, and then I try and figure out what materials I'll need to fulfill that concept, you know? So, like, I have, I have a feeling or I have an idea, and then I go, what can I use to make my idea complete rather than looking at a chunk of clay and being like, what do you want to be? It's, it starts the other way, you know? Mm. But I would also say that I understand the value of craft or high craft as well because I also work on cars, you know? And working on cars is very much a craft. It's a utilitarian thing, you know? And it's... Um, you know, even doing body work on cars, it's, I mean, I, you can be as eccentric as you want to be, but, you know, you, you know, if you want to do a car normally or like how everyone else does, you still got to pull out the 600 grit sandpaper and go to town for five days, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's still some elbow grease, man. And that is, um, that'll humble you, you know? And I think, um, I really like that about sort of, of the groundedness of craft or of like making something and um, applying oneself to process, I think is a, is a, it's almost meditative in the, and grounding in a really cool sense that we are, reminds us that we are tools, right? And we are manifestors and we are, we are our own little gods that create our worlds. Mm. Aesthetic experiences. Do you feel like um, like the indigenous art market tends to, um, I don't know, 
um, give it more appreciation than like just the broader contemporary art market, the craft, I mean? Oh, totally. Totally. I mean, when I, I, I took this class in grad school called craftivism. And craftivism is a really cool concept where, um, you know, our, our art world is sort of evolving out of modern art, of postmodern art, of conceptual art, where it's very simple. You have your Donald Judds and you're very, you know, you're... Um, you're painting with just one color, you know, your, your, your canvas that is very simple and modern. And so the more and more simple and conceptual it got, the more art it was. So there's sort of a reaction to that where in the Western or contemporary art world, um, people start using like sloppy craft, like construction paper and yarn and knitting and, googly eyes and things like that to to deconstruct that idea of what is important and what is more valuable than another thing right um and so that was considered craftivism from the contemporary western art perspective however when you think about craftivism from an indigenous perspective our context already starts out with you have to make everything by hand it's the diy is already there dude we are (laughs) diy you can't go buy your regalia at Walmart, you know? Yeah, you can go buy all the parts, but you still got to go home and make it. You know what I mean? No one's going to make it for you, you know? So we come from a culture that already is sort of trained in that DIY do-it-yourself um, thing. So craftivism becomes when these people who come from a, a DIY situation sort of make it their own. And so look at Marcus Ammerman, who takes beads as his beadwork, and then he does the Rolling Stone cover of Janet Jackson, right? So that's craftivism from an indigenous standpoint, right? Melissa Cody, who does traditional Navajo rugs and then puts, you know, Barbie doll in it. You know what I'm saying? Or bright pink colors and stuff. That's indigenous craftivism. Um, Or you get some you know, traditional potters who then paint their pots with acrylic paints or something. Well, that's, you know, it's a whole different conversation. And that's what's sort of frustrating is that the context or where we come from is so different as indigenous people in a cultural context, as opposed to the contemporary Western art world or art market even, you know. Um, And so there is sort of there is definitely a value to honoring that even the indigenous art market has perpetuated traditional techniques and stuff. I mean, we we could completely lose that if we weren't making a living off of it, in a sense, you know? So there's something beautiful about the fact that these traditions are still happening, you know? And at the same time, it's a glass ceiling, um, unless you want to be a craftivist from an indigenous standpoint and blah, blah, blah. So, <laughs> yeah, it's sort of frustrating in a lot of ways because I have a lot of respect for, you know, the, the maintaining. Part of me is a diehard um, conservative in a cultural sense, you know? Like I want so badly for for the thing that I love that is my Pueblo culture to sustain itself and to survive. 
And I realize I'm too weird to be the one doing it. You know, I'm the I'm a weirdo, dude. And I can I've experienced enough and have participated enough to love it dearly. You know? But I know that I can't be that person to make traditional pottery and to and to perpetuate that part of the culture. And I honor and respect and 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 have incredible, you know, love for those people who are doing that work. It has to be done. It has some it has to happen. And I'm so grateful that people are doing it. I and then, and then there's that shame that how come you're not that one that had to make an elk <laughs> <laughs> I can't help it. I'm just, you know, a cartoon character. <laughs> Goes back to the cartoon character. Yeah. What's your spirit animal? It's, it's animated. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's good to have, um, to have that perspective to be able to see, like, the good the positive and the negative of a niche market, like a native art market, you know? Yeah. Because it sustains uh, many, many people and culture. Um, but then it's also important to have the weirdos, you know, like you and your <laughs> peers, Thanks, you know? <laughs> but yeah. I do think it's, I do think it's really important because um, there's, there might be a glass ceiling, but there are ways to just kind of like keep putting pebbles in and like lifting it a little, yeah, bit, right. Higher. Right, right. <laughs> little bit higher. Add the rocks to it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I just think about it, and as much as I am grateful and, you know, have a lot of respect for that, the whole context and the whole, uh, it's tragic. It's heartbreaking that this is what is happening and this is what we have to do to maintain our culture is to turn around and sell it back to the colonizers. It's just tragic, you know, and that, that part of it is just heartbreaking to me. Um, you know, and I believe in, in, in moving those heartbreaking feelings, you know, so that we can evolve and, and create a new a new path, a new possibility, you know, and part of that is like sustainability. So what is not just economically sustainable, but what is also emotionally sustainable? Hmm. If this is breaking our hearts, if this cultural erosion has come so far that this is what we're doing for a living and this is the story we're telling and this is what the part of our culture that we have to exploit in order to put food on our table. You know, how does that feel deep down in yourself? How does that feel? What would our ancestors be thinking if they could see us and when they see us do what we do, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I sort of, I want another option. I, I'm not okay with what's, available out there I'm not I'm not okay with these options and I think that's what what keeps me audacious and what keeps me wanting to go and try new things is is I keep asking that question what else is there what other options are there because this one doesn't feel very good in this way and yeah it works this way you know but I want I want to transform my reality 
And I want, I want it to feel sustainable for my heart and for my mind and for my soul and for my body, you know. I want it to be all around a good feeling experience. And that is relational aesthetics. How do we make our world an art piece that is sustainable? How do we walk in a sustainable aesthetic way because we are conscious enough to be aware of how our actions are creating aesthetic responses and reactions? Right? Seriously. this amazing I went to a talk at the Lenzik and this guy said he talked about the blessed unrest Hmm. right and it wasn't it's not about being angry it's not about being reactionary it's not about um going out and and starting a fight it's about understanding that there is an unrest and that unrest or that uncomfortableness is a blessing because it forces us to move right and so that blessed unrest pushes us to make change. Um, and how we choose to take that unrest and move it forth, you know, is our own thing. And I think that heartbreak and that anger that I sometimes feel, I try not to turn it into an attack because I feel like, you don't start a conversation by slapping someone in the face, you know? And so how do I um, take those strong emotions, right? They're not necessarily bad or good. Like I said before, they're strong. They're empowering emotions and turn them into something that is going to move energy forth not necessarily in any specific direction, is just going to get the gears rolling. Let's, let's get these questions out there. Let's get people thinking. Let's get people feeling things they haven't necessarily felt before and, and start waking up to parts of themselves and experiences that maybe they're not used to. You know, let's get them into suspended disbelief. Let's, let's um, shake people awake. And sometimes that happens in so many ways and so many different people do it in so many different ways. You know, and the way that I try and do it is by taking that blessed unrest and turning it into a power object. And it might just be a car with a 454. (laughs) (laughs) Big block V8. (laughs) Something that makes me feel like I'm moving, that I'm growing, that I'm alive. I'm awake and, and building that consciousness so that as I move forth, I am more prepared and more on it, I guess. What would be something that you wished somebody had told you? Um, some form of advice, like just from a human perspective, from an artist's perspective, from a scholarly perspective, um, something that you can pass on to other people 
that might help them along their way as artists? I think what I struggle with the most is that is doubt, self-doubt, you know? And I guess the thing that I, like, have to tell myself the most, and I don't know if other people are the same, but I suppose if it's something I deal with, then maybe other people are facing that too, but that, that no matter what, you're you're a good person. You're doing good in the world. Just keep one foot in front of the next and keep your eyes open and your heart open and and remember that you are a good thing and you and you started off as a good thing and you, you know you did nothing wrong, <laughs> you know, and to Sort of forgive yourself and sigh and nurture yourself and and find out what nurturing yourself truly is. And sometimes it may not be what you think. And yeah, just to uh, slow down enough to listen and wake up to oneself in order to love ourselves through these hard times. change one thing about the human experience what would it be I think we're all kind of missing out on a whole lot of love I think that we're in general I don't think we would hurt each other I don't think we would hurt plants and animals or our environment or each other if we felt more love for ourselves um and I think in order to feel more love for ourselves, we kind of have to awaken to some of those scary parts of ourselves and find compassion and forgiveness for that too. Because mm-hmm. the more we're closed off and numb to ourselves, the more we can hurt other things and be unconscious of our actions in the world. But the more that we open up and feel on a deeper level ourselves, the more the more sort of nerve endings we have, the more antenna we have, and the more awareness we will have as we move through the world. And we won't, we just won't hurt anything else because we will know how that feels to be hurt. Mm. And we won't want to inflict that on anyone else. And that is forgiveness for self. That is compassion and empathy and we're missing a whole lot of that. I mean, as a human, as human people in this world, we have really lost track of that. And I'm pretty, we're going to have to wake up. And if we don't wake up on our own, 
Big Mama's gonna wake us up for us, you know? <laughs> so you better get your shit together or Mama's gonna slap your face. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> so it's like, if we don't wake up to ourselves and our actions and the consequences of our actions pretty soon, you know, Mama can't take too much pain anymore. So better be ready. <laughs> you know? So I hope that I can be as conscious as I can and do the work that I can get to that place so that I can be with her in that awakening rather than against her. I can work with her and be in a compassionate and indigenous to the earth place. I can remember that I am her child and be on her team when she finally decides enough is enough. Hmm. That's kind of where I'm going or what I hope to go. <laughs> and if I don't if I don't make it, I don't make it, you know. If my muscle cars are deemed too painful for mama, I understand. <laughs> well, I think she she does like whole system learning, you know. So <laughs> yeah. Who knows, you know, maybe who knows? Who knows? I just hope that it's just your intention, really, you know, your consciousness and intention. Mm. So as long as you're aware of your intention, then you know you, you've got a good heart and that's all that matters. Is there anything else that you feel like you want to say? This is your, your soapbox moment. Is there something you want to say to the universe? Now is your chance. <laughs> and never again <laughs> yeah and then that's it that's basically that's it. <laughs> no pressure I guess I uh, I'm grateful I'm grateful for support I'm grateful for the people that are doing that hard work out there you know I'm there with you side by side all of us who are asking those big questions and are taking those big leaps and are walking down those dark hallways of our souls, you know. Thank you for daring. Thank you for trying. Thank you for looking. Thank you for being strong and brave and sincere and, and the beautiful mess that is so complicated and so frustrating at times that is the most amazing flower of a soul that was ever made is every single one of you crazy people out there that are my brothers and sisters and people that are my human family who all exist in this experience, this aesthetic experience of humanity. I'm grateful. There is a light in the
Let it go, let it go, let it go. Ooh. 